Hello, everyone. I am Kimberly Adams, and welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kai Rizdal. It's Tuesday, one show, one topic. Today, we're talking productivity. We're talking productivity in the pandemic. We're talking productivity and why it matters. We're talking productivity and economic growth, all aspects of productivity. We've seen um, some ups and downs, shall we say, in that particular economic mm-hmm. indicator uh, of late. Right. Right now we're seeing what they call historic declines, as in we haven't seen them since like the late 1940s. And it's not necessarily a new thing. We've had this productivity slowing down for years. So what we're going to get into today is why is this happening? Should we be worried? And what does it mean for our economy? Because productivity is kind of like the thing that fuels economic growth. And who knows, maybe we'll even talk about quiet quitting a bit. Oh, God, do we have to? I'm so sick and tired of that phrase. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole different thing. Um, here to make us smart today is Quaylen Ellen Groot. She's uh, the director of the McKinsey Global Institute, where she leads research on global productivity. Quaylen, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so let's do some definitions first, right? Productivity is widgets produced per hour worked, if you want to get mathematical about it. What is it really, though, and what does it show us? Yes, productivity is basically output per a unit of input. And generally at the country level, it means GDP per worker. Uh, So you described widgets per hour at the individual level. When we take that up for countries, GDP per worker is what we typically think about in terms of labor productivity. Hmm. And it matters because it basically leads to higher incomes. It drives a richer society. It basically drives higher standards of living for the United States and around the world. Okay, so then productivity here in the United States. By the way, productivity or productivity? <laughs> <laughs> no, she's, no that's a serious question. <laughs> she's totally serious. I say productivity, but I, I think either one works. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. So then what's been happening with productivity in the last year? And how does it compare to sort of historical trends? Yeah, Kimberly, let's put this in really broad historic perspectives. Okay. Um, the last couple quarters, to your point, have been very, very low productivity. But earlier on in the pandemic, we actually saw productivity increase. And part of this was because early on in the pandemic, there were a lot of labor losses. So people were losing their jobs. Demand was still relatively high. It dipped a bit. But with some of the stimulus checks and others, there was still demand in the economy. So the numerator of sort of GDP and demand was high. The numer- the denominator was lower because there were fewer workers. And so productivity was high early on in the pandemic. It has now since dipped. And there's a lot going on these days. But can I pause you for a second? For those of us who haven't taken math in a really long time, the numerator is a number on the top of the line. The denominator is a number on the bottom of the line that you divide to get the thing. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) So early on in the pandemic, what we saw was high productivity because demand or GDP was still pretty high. And we were achieving that with a fewer number of workers. A number of people had lost their jobs. uh, And so fewer workers in the overall economy, but the stimulus checks were still keeping demand pretty high. What has changed though, since early on in the pandemic to these first couple quarters of 2022, is now we've got lower productivity. We've got uh, waning demand. We've got high inflation, which is uh, quite challenging for, for demand. Uh, We've got fragmented supply chains, both globally and even regionally. We have higher geopolitical tensions. So a lot is affecting overall productivity. 
And if we zoom out even further and go back historically, what we see even, you know, post-1990s, um, we saw a lot of productivity increase with personal computers, mm. with software, with database systems, right? As that completely transformed global supply chains, that was a huge productivity boom historically. Then after that big wave of productivity, we actually saw productivity drop by about one percentage point across most countries around the world. And that was sort of phase one. Then that headed into 2008, mm -hmm. 2001, 2008, particularly the financial crisis in 2008 caused another about one percentage point drag in productivity across countries because we had job losses in financial services. We also had lower loan rates. We had uh, capital intensity and, and growth overall slowing uh, because of loan volumes in that wave. And then we headed into kind of horizon three, where we saw a lot of digitization and we're seeing that continue now. We're seeing a lot of automation. In fact, automation accelerated by COVID, but we're not yet seeing all the benefits of that. So we're certainly seeing the investments and the costs of paying for the digitization and the automation. But if you talk to company leaders, many of them will say, I'm starting to see small benefits, but it's, you know, fingers and toes, it's bits and pieces. I don't yet have entire jobs that have been eliminated because of automation. I have maybe hmm. a third of the work overall, but it's bits and pieces of everybody's work. And to fully capture those benefits and then see the benefit through productivity, I've actually got to redesign the work and the jobs to kind of see that all the way through. So we're part of the way down that road, mm -hmm. but it's yet to fully play out. So as the trained observer in this conversation, are you concerned? I am a bit concerned, partly oh. because of two quarters of low productivity and partly because we have all of these broader pressures of geopolitical tensions, these fragmented supply chains, which really are a new normal, right? After decades of globalization and integration and just-in-time management, this is a really different way of managing. We're seeing energy prices um, through the roof, and now they've come down a little bit, um, but inflation affecting both energy, food, um, a lot of that will deter investment and interest rates overall will deter investment. And that may hit across multiple industries and further slow down productivity. Mm -hmm. So I am concerned because productivity managed matters for all of us. This is something that we need to continue to watch. Hopefully this will be just a momentary quick turnaround and we'll see productivity rise in the future. Um, but if it doesn't, I, I do think um, there's a cause for mm -hmm. concern. Just to make sure that I understand this fully, can you expand a little bit more about that link between inflation and productivity? Absolutely. So because productivity is GDP um, or sort of growth overall, mm -hmm. um, when inflation uh, and interest rates are high, it deters investments in companies. It deters taking out a loan to invest in a capital plant or to mm -hmm. invest in a big project that may pay off down the road because the interest rates are too high to get that return on investment. And so then companies avoid making those investments, just like individuals might avoid right, taking out a home interest, uh, home equity loan uh, to invest in their home. Mm -hmm. And then that overall and over time decreases GDP. And so that's the cause for concern we have. If interest rates continue to be high for too long, that will dampen our overall economy across industries. Some industries much more than others, but across the board that will dampen growth rates. 
we should be clear here that, um, and you alluded to this, I mean, this is a long-term, I don't want to say problem, but it's a long-term issue, right? And what productivity is doing month to month, even really year to year, is not the thing. What we want to keep our eye on is where it has been and, and then where it is going, right? You're exactly right, okay. right? This is a long-term trend. We should be looking at it in, you know, chunks of years, three years, five years, right? And we see sort of decades in some of those uh, trends over time. I would look at these first couple quarters as just an early warning sign, right? So something mm-hmm. to be looked at and watched. And if it doesn't turn around, action is probably needed. It, sorry, let me let me just follow up real quick. Is, is there a role for government here to make it better? I mean, action by whom or who? I forget. <laughs> I think action by a number of groups. Uh, certainly interest rates uh, and the Fed have a huge role to play there uh, as they're actively um, communicating. I do think uh, some of the federal stimulus and federal investments mm-hmm. can play a role in uh, both dampening inflation, uh, but also spurring growth in certain sectors and, and spurring job growth as well. And then companies uh, in making those investments, right? Not being deterred by higher interest rates, but making the positive return on investment investments that are going to make sense down the road. And then most importantly, capturing the productivity lift from automation, from you know restructuring jobs so that they can fully capture higher levels of productivity across different roles, across different industries. So as the resident elder millennial here, um, <laughs> talk about so the quiet quitting air quote phenomenon. And is this really something that factors into productivity where we are right now? I think it certainly could. So quiet quitting, uh, the definition being that I'm just going to do the bare minimum in my job. I'm not going to go above and beyond anymore. And if workers start to work less and do less, that will show up in their productivity, their individual productivity that then adds up to company productivity, that then adds up to overall economy or comp- you know countrywide productivity. So if workers are quiet quitting and doing less on their job, that should show up over time in productivity numbers. Now, the one exception is if they're being thoughtful about what they're actually quiet quitting on, if they're stopping the work that is unnecessary, unhelpful, not really adding any value, then that probably wouldn't affect productivity because frankly, they shouldn't have probably been doing that work to begin with. Mm -hmm. But the more they stop work that is value add, that is important to do, we will see that flow through over time into productivity Mm -hmm. numbers. But what about the people who, like, say, somebody quits and some and other folks just absorb their jobs? That, in theory, increases your productivity, but those jobs went away. Like, how does – and if you say, you know what, no, my colleague quit and I'm not going to do their job, that job's just going to be undone. Like, what does that do? Absolutely. Kimberly, that's the inverse or the opposite of the quiet quitting, right? It That does increase productivity because now – I have either the same output or the same kind of growth generated um, for fewer employees. And so your productivity for a group of five, if somebody quits, will go up by 20%. And that is, I think, part of the phenomenon that we saw early on in the pandemic, right? Relatively stable levels of uh, GDP for fewer employees as the input. And so if we see more and more of that 
we should see productivity rise. Now, that is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so to our conversation earlier of productivity is a long-term game, right? We want to look at long-term trends. And if we're getting a short-term burst that is unsustainable, that is not the kind of productivity that's going to help us in the medium and long term. So sorry, I'm just going to hammer on this point. So is this drop in productivity simply an acknowledgement of the unsustainable growth in productivity that we had before? Or is it really a meaningful change in the economy? It very well could be a reflection of, frankly, exhaustion, right? From Mm -hmm. two and a half years of um, quarantine, uh, of kind of working in remote ways, uh, working longer hours potentially, and also some of the mental health challenges and intensity that many have experienced. So it could be a temporary reflection of that, um, or it could be an early warning sign of a longer term trend. So we will have to wait and see, but just knowing that productivity is so critical for all of us and for standards of living in this country and around the world, it is worth keeping a close eye on. Quaylen Ellengrude is director of the McKinsey Global Institute, where she heads up research on global productivity. And, uh, <laughs> Having it both ways. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling very validated. I want to look it up online and actually see what the dictionary oh, said. But if Quaylen says productivity, I am there team productivity. Quaylen, thanks <laughs> Thank a lot. you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Oh, man. Yeah, it's... Just the the angst over the quiet quitting yeah. thing the last couple of weeks has really made me think like it's I just don't think it's a real thing. I think that we were what what Quaylen just said that we were at these unsustainable yeah. levels yeah. of work, yep. <laughs> and now people are just like you know what it's not worth it. Absolutely not worth my mental health. I'm not getting paid enough for this, and so every time I see this like freak out over the drop in productivity, I'm just like, is it really? A drop in productivity, or is it a reset to reasonableness? Right. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. All right. Well, tell us what you think. Are you obsessed with being productive? Well, I guess in that case, it's pro. Anyway, do you feel like you've been more, become more or less productive? Let us know. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You could also send us a voice memo at makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. And now it is time for the news fix. Kai, after you. Okay, so this was actually yesterday, but uh, I didn't do it yesterday for some reason. I forget. Um, And I want to make sure people understand what's happening here. Mm -hmm. So last week, Friday, Jay Powell gives a big speech. Actually, it was a very small speech. It lasted eight minutes and 51 seconds, the shortest speech by a Federal Reserve chair at the big Jackson Hole retreat in at least 20 years. And basically what Powell said is, we are going to raise rates until we have beaten back inflation, and then we might raise a little bit more if we have to to make sure that the boogeyman is really dead. And stocks promptly did what you would expect stocks to do when the Fed chair gives them a talking to, which is they rolled over and fell 3% uh, pretty much across the board. And then there was a podcast that came out yesterday by Mm -hmm. Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway at Bloomberg. They do a podcast called Odd Lots, and they had Neil Kashkari on. Neil Kashkari Mm -hmm. is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. And Kashkari, when talking about the Fed speech and more importantly, the market reaction, said he was happy that the market 
finally seems to be taking on board what the Federal Reserve has been saying, that they understand that interest rates are going to keep going up. And now we finally get it. Here's why this matters. What the Federal Reserve is trying to do is to adjust what are called financial conditions, right? They want to make people feel like money is tighter. And that manifests in many, many ways, right? Literally interest rates, the 10-year, corporate bond spreads, stock market, all kinds of things. The biggest indicator of it, though, is the stock market. When stocks fall and they fall hard, financial conditions conditions are perceived to be tightening. And that, once again, is what the Federal Reserve wants to do. They want to make money more expensive. They want to make people stop spending so that inflation stops going up and, in fact, really contracts back to where, it want, where they want it to be around its 2% target. And it's really important that people understand that what's happening now in the markets, I don't even know where they are today, down a little bit, but what's happening in the markets and financial conditions is what the Federal Reserve wants to happen. They want things to tighten up. That's, it's just important people understand that. So is there this sense that the markets just didn't believe them? Yes. Yes. <laughs> literally. Literally. To, to paraphrase Kate Davidson, who's at Politico and is on a Friday mm-hmm. show every now and then on Marketplace, it's like when you, you take your kids to the playground and you've had enough finally after an hour and you say, OK, kids, 15 minutes. OK, kids, five minutes. OK, kids, one minute. We're leaving. And then you say, OK, kids, time to go. And they somehow they freak out because they didn't understand that it was time to go. Right. And now hopefully the markets understand that it's actually time to go. What does the consumer side of that look like? So, well, there's the markets coming to terms with it. But what does it mean for like you and I to come to terms with it? Well, if you understand the financial conditions are tightening, right, you may not take out whatever loan you're going to do. You may pay down your credit card balances. You might be more cautious about your spending, which is all of which Powell wants to have happen, right? We talked about this on a Wednesday, a couple Mm -hmm. of Wednesdays, right? What can I as an individual do? Put your money under your mattress and stop spending. Right. (laughs) I mean, that that's fundamentally it. And and now I think Powell understands that. uh, I'm sorry. The markets understand that, that Powell is serious, you know? Yeah, I mean, I was chatting with one of my friends about, you know, remembering, and I think I mentioned this on the show a while back, like being teenagers and starting savings accounts and investing in CDs, for example, certificates of deposit, and like laddering those CDs where every time one... I know, right? Wow. Uh, we were we were probably way too financially savvy. <laughs> uh, no, we had parents who like were paranoid yeah. about our long term well being. Anyway, but this idea that you could like put a little bit of money in the bank and if you just left it alone, it would in- compound and compound and compound, which nobody has been able to do for like twenty years, yeah. right? And so, like, there's a whole level of financial literacy Mm -hmm. of operating in a higher interest rate environment that people just Mm -hmm. do not have. Literally a generation. It's been 1975-ish, you know, for sure. Yeah. And, okay, I'm not, no, no, not 1975. Well, all right. right, You know know what I mean. I mean, that's kind of when it started. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, as, um, as the no. younger, what are you, the older millennial in the room? Right? Elder, no, millennial elder millennial is what millennial, they call right. me. Yeah. Um, but no, I th- I feel like that that may be something that we need to to yeah, potentially talk about a future show. Yeah. It's like what financial literacy tools. Mm-hmm. Do folks need to operate in a higher interest rate environment? Yeah. Because a lot of people just don't know. Don't so. have a clue for sure. Anyway, what's All yours? Right. Go ahead. Uh, mine is on a, uh, new study out from, let me just get it pulled up again. It was in, it 
a study presented at the annual meeting of the Endocrine Society in Atlanta, Georgia, that, and I'm reading here from the Science Daily piece, thank you, Marketplace Newsletter, um, for that two experimental male contraceptive pills appear to successfully reduce testosterone oh. without causing unacceptable side effects. Science words for they've got a male birth control pill uh, that probably looks like it's going to work. I, w I wonder what unacceptable side effects are when you're thinking about a male birth control pill versus all the damn side effects for female birth control pills. Uh, I'm get, I mean, like, look, there's clearly a double standard here, but I'm right. guessing like people, men feeling like they lose their juju or something like that, <laughs> or, you know, they decrease so, the amount of so body sorry. hair that they're growing. Oh my or, God. All right. All right. You know, sorry no, no, seriously, yeah, like, no, you're, you're talking right. about you're reducing right. testosterone, yeah. you're talking about reduction of body hair, um, potentially like you're you know, yep. man boobs getting a little bit bigger or whatever. And these have been real issues that have come up in the past when they work on these things. And now they've got some pills that seem to get around these things, but also meaningfully reduce, you know, your sperm count and your right. ability to right. make somebody who gives birth pregnant. And this is increasingly important because in many, many parts of the country now, abortion mm -hmm. is less accessible. Mm -hmm. And the risks of having unprotected sex are just significantly higher. I mean, not to mention, you know, all the STDs and STIs, which, you know, a birth control pill is not going to help you with. But when you're talking about pregnancy, you know, the, the risk is just higher right. for an unplanned right. if you have an unplanned pregnancy. And, you know, if you're worried about those child support payments, it may be worth it to you to, uh, you know, take a pill every day. And mm -hmm. yes, women have been taking birth control pills and dealing with the side effects for ages from the weight gain and the bloating and the mood swings and all that stuff. So cry me a river if you're worried about the male birth, birth right. control pill. But I do think it takes on additional sort of political connotations and social connotations in this specific environment. Absolutely so. does. Absolutely does. All right, that's so I'll it be the curious news. how that goes if we if it gets to market soon. Yeah, yeah and hopefully it does, right? Because for all the reasons you just laid out. Yeah. Uh, anyway, news mailbag. Begin. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, first up, we have a voice memo that came in from a CPA after our recent discussion about the IRS and tax filing. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Matt from Chicago. I've heard the idea of the IRS doing your taxes for you floated before, but there's one big drawback I see that many people may not think about. Kai was right to point out that the IRS already knows a lot about your taxes before you file, but the problem is the IRS mostly knows about your income. They don't know anything about a lot of your education expenses, medical expenses, and many other deductions that could reduce your tax bill. My misgiving is that if people got a mostly completed return in the mail and were prompted to review, edit, and sign it, many would miss their deductions and credits and end up just signing what they got and paying more taxes than they needed to. That's just my thought anyway. Thanks for always making us smart. Totally fair. Totally, totally fair. Uh, you know, and that's a tax code question more than a, you know, how you file. But I, I totally make sense. Totally get it. I mean, yeah, but like on balance, you know, yeah. the potential harm versus the potential good, the people who, you know, would have that situation are often, you know, people who are doing deductions in general 
tend to be higher income, probably have a little bit better access to financial tools. And so, you know, I just think on mass that the general population would likely be better off. Uh, Yeah. My, My gut tells me that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, I'd I'd love to see a yeah. study sort of breaking that down, sort of yeah. like what would be the actual consequences of of that in the U.S. Yep, totally true. All right, uh, before we get to this next one, I wanna I wanna follow up on uh, what I said yesterday about the uh, space shuttle engine, not the space shuttle engines. Well, they were the space shuttle engines, but the rockets mm. that are going on uh, uh, the Artemis thing. I got a DM yesterday from Francois Florence. Uh, who writes about a couple of things, one of which was the Aerojet Rocketdyne shuttle engines used on the SLS, which is the big rocket. Yes, they are all reused, he said, but this is their last use as the SLS boosters are not recoverable and will end up in the ocean. So oh. this is this is the swan song, if you will, for those rocket engines. And I just thought people might be interested in that. I wonder how much space junk is like in the bottom oh, of the ocean so at this much. point. So much. And like how we just sort of like ignore the environmental consequences of that for the larger good, I guess, of of going to space. (sighs) Yeah. All right. Here we go. Next one. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. I want to maybe add a little bit of hope around that 2050 date on phasing out gas-powered cars. Okay. Just -hmm. like with electric cars, gas-powered cars are eventually going to face problems with charging and the infrastructure that supports them. So I Mm -hmm. wouldn't be surprised if at, say... 60% 60% of the cars on the road being electric, you actually start to face an issue where it becomes legitimately hard to find a gas station to fill up your car. Mm-hmm. That's it. Great listening to your show. Thank you for keeping us happy. So range anxiety for gas cars. Right. Did you see that piece in the time? Maybe it was the Times. I forget where it was. Maybe the Atlantic about how people have all this range anxiety about 300 miles and, you know, can they get 320 or whatever? When was the last time you drove 300 miles? Right. Yeah. Something like Without 90% stopping. of car trips are like 25 miles or less or something. Yeah. 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 Not a real yeah. concern. Yeah. All right. Before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the make me smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew, but later found out you were wrong about? Hi, this is Jeannie calling from Racine, Wisconsin. My daughter, Chloe, called in from London with her Make Me Smart a couple weeks ago, and she challenged me to call in. (laughs) So this is mine. Family affair. I thought that when I first held my newborn children in my arms, that that must surely be the most difficult part of parenting. (laughs) The parent has to do everything for that child. But then the kids get a little older, and they start toddling about, and I found out that keeping a constant eye on them was far more difficult because they don't understand the dangers of the world. In a few years, they become vocal, and I found it was even harder to try to answer all their questions about how the world works and what's happening. And when they became preteens, they started asking ethical and moral questions, the kinds that don't have a right or wrong answer, and that was far more challenging. When they became teenagers, they stopped asking questions at all, and not knowing what was going on was more difficult than anything else so far. And finally, they became adults, and they moved out on their own. And at that point... I realize that the very hardest part of parenting is giving them the freedom to take everything that we've given them and to leave and pursue their own dreams, which is why my daughter lives in London and I'm in Racine. (laughs) So now I know that those sweet infants that I held in my arms represented the very easiest part of parenting. So I love my kids and they make me proud every single day. They have definitely made me smarter. Thanks for the show. I really enjoy it. And you make me almost as smart as my kids have. Oh, that was lovely. 
Oh, that that's making me all misty-eyed. That's that so lovely. sweet. That was great. Yeah, that was nice. That's a great one. Thank yep. you for sending that in. Um, if you want to send me a make me smart that doesn't make me cry uh, or any <laughs> version of your answer to the make me smart question, you can send it to us via voice memo to our email at makemesmart at marketplace.org or leave us a message at 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART, where you be misty-eyed. <laughs> oh. It's the dry air in California, I tell you. That's right. Make Me Smart is directed and produced or produced and directed by Marissa Cabrera. Our intern is Olivia Zhao. Ellen Rolf is, writes our newsletters. Today's program is engineered by Juan Carlos Torado. Mishin Siguan is going to mix it down later. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. The senior producer is Bridget Bodner. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Man, we got more credits on Tuesdays than we know what to do with. I know, so many people. But they are, they are Take- the people who do all the work, by the way. Kimberly and I just kind of talk. That's, I know, we just ramble. Yeah. <laughs>